Trade at Houseology is the supplier of choice for professionals seeking designer furniture, lighting and accessories. Saving you time spent on sourcing, admin and logistics so you can focus on creating beautiful interiors. Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. This is our first anniversary. We've produced 13 episodes so far and can report a staggering 20,000 downloads already. Thank you to our fantastic guests, our series supporter, Trade at Houseology, and to all our listeners for making our debut year such a great success. What better way to celebrate than with a live audience special here at the fabulous Rocker London Gallery in Chelsea Harbour. My name is Jeff Hayward, and I'm here with my co-presenter, Susie Rumble, Creative Director of Tasuto Interiors, as we immerse ourselves in the richly layered topic of colour psychology for interior designers. Yes, what precisely is colour psychology and how does it work? Does colour have an innate power to change human behaviour, happiness and well-being? And how can interior designers harness the positive benefits of colour in their work? Welcome to the interior design business. Helping us navigate our way through the complexities of colour psychology, we are joined by two renowned colour experts, Karen Haller and Marianne Schillingford. Welcome to you both. Karen, what is your background and connection to colour psychology? So my background to colour psychology is actually quite a long journey, but just in a nutshell, you can hear from my accent, I'm originally from Australia. Oh, there's a few Australians. <laughs> there's always an Australian, isn't there? Um, it was when I was doing a fashion design and millinery course, and I was putting chocolate brown feathers onto a teal uh, duck egg blue hat that I had been, uh, that I'd blocked. And it was at that moment that I just went, oh my God, it's colour. Because I had been doing lots of arts and crafts and lots of um, courses, and I never really knew what it was I was looking for. And then I just had this moment of, oh, it's colour. So then I went on a massive colour journey, but I didn't know what I was looking for. But every time I did a course, I thought, this isn't it, this isn't it, this is not, wasn't what I was looking for. Because I really, at the time, what I didn't realise, what I wanted to do was to understand human behaviour and understand why we have such an emotional reaction and a response to colour and why is it we like some colours one day and not the next and why is it we will walk past four cafes when they're perfectly good but we'll wait to find the one that we want to then go into. Why is it that we walk past racks of clothes? Why is it that we will um, spend hours in an interior store just trying to find the right thing. Um, and it wasn't until I came to the UK and I uh, found yet endless you know, weekend workshops on colour and that's when I met Angela Wright who then became my teacher because she could answer all my questions. And then I realised this thing that I was trying to find actually had a name and it was Applied Colour Psychology. So I went and studied with her and that was over 10 years ago. So I haven't really looked back from then. So now I just basically talk about colour. <laughs> 
I'm obsessed with it. My whole, you know, probably virtually my every waking moment is, is to look at how colour influences behaviour, how it can change how we feel, how, the impact that it has on us, on our mental health, on our well-being, um, how it... Um, in, in an instant, it can, it can, it can change us. And my really big push, probably the last 10 years, was to try and find out why we were so scared and why we were innately, for something that we're so innately, you know, in tune to, why were we scared of color? Why was it that we were just living in a world of black and white and gray? What, why were we so worried about our own color choices? And that really then led to me writing this book. You mean you're a published author too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in, what, 29th of August, um, that's when the book came out. So The Little Book of Colour, and it's how to use the psychology of colour to transform your life. Another thing that I'm absolutely thrilled about is it's already being published in 12 languages. So this wow. is going great guns. It's, it's huge. And uh, colour is cyclic, and it's really having its moment, and we're just on the crest of this wave, and it's... And, yeah, if you're on it, we're all going to be riding this wonderful wave of colour. Fantastic. Yeah. Are you on that wave too, Marianne? And how did you get there if you are? Um, uh, how I got... So I'm the creative <clears throat> director of uh, Dulux, Axe Novelle, and Dulux for the UK, Ireland, and apparently South Africa. I don't, I don't know why, but that's as well. Um, and my journey in colour started... I mean, the only real exam I ever passed, or is real sort of interviews, I went for a job at Courtaulds when I was about 18... And um, it was, it was presented with this huge table of colour chips, and I was asked to put them all in chromatic order. Oh, I thought, this is fabulous. And they left me to it, and I just put this thing in. And they'd, they said that, that, that I was, I just got it kind of absolutely spot on. And I was brought up on a rose garden. My dad grew roses, and so we were brought up immersed in colour. My mother made wine out of rose petals. You know, colour was absolutely everything from the moment, you know, I was, I was brought up. And then it sort of transferred into, into paint. And so I um, uh, went to college, did art. Uh, um, this is a shaggy story. We need a gin and tonic for this because it's fantastic. It goes on. Um, but um, did art uh, and, and found that the actual the painting, the technical aspect of painting and using colour in paint, I just loved it. And I was a really good copyist. Wasn't a terrible good fine artist, but brilliant with paint. And um, wanted to earn some money out of it. So left college, uh, art college, went off to do sign writing, city and guilds, decorating and interior decorating, um, and then ran my own business. I worked on a fairground, painting fairground rides for five years. Um, and so I understand not just paint, but the theatre of colour and how colour transforms you know, and, and entertains us. So colour has always been at the heart and paint of everything that I do. And meeting Karen, you know, Karen has the same kind of, we, we both understand, we both are passionate exponents of colour and, and passionate champions of colour because we know it changes everything and makes everybody feel good um, if you use it correctly. Are you happy with that? That's a I'm, good story. I'm speechless already. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, Susie, what's your understanding of colour psychology and its relationship to you and the work of your practice? Okay, so... For me, colour psychology is the study of hues as a determinant of human behaviour and perceptions. And as a theory, it's currently enjoying a real moment in the sun. It's very influential at the moment in product branding, retailing, and the design of interiors for residential and commercial spaces. But this impact in colour is not new. As far back as the 18th century, German poets Goethe and Schiller, for example, created their rows of temperament colour wheel, matching eight colours to human characteristics and traits and occupations. 
They declared that red and orange were for tyrants, heroes, and adventurers. Yellow and green were for hedonists, lovers, and poets. Blue and violet were for orators and historians. And violet and magenta were for philosophers, pedants, and rulers. But before we go on to tackle the colour preferences of tyrants, poets, and pedants, Karen, can you please explain to us why do objects appear the colours that they do? Oh, this is, this still blows my mind. Because when we see, so we're looking at Marianne's lovely legs and she's got orange. So when (laughs) the light hits her orange tights, are they called tights or stockings? Tights, tights. Not stockings. The colour we see, (laughs) so all the colours are absorbed and the colour we see is the colour that's rejected. It's weird and it's the still thing that blows my mind. So, you know, when we see like a red apple, the red we see is the colour that is rejected. What is the mechanism then that allows us, our eyes, to actually differentiate and actually recognise that that red apple is reflecting that red wavelength? So the wavelength that comes back to us, the, the, the light waves then go into to our eyes where the cones are, the receptors, and it computes this. It, it, when it strikes, when the wavelength strikes, it then works out what the wavelength is and that's what we see. Every wavelength of colour is, is like a wavelength of sound. And our bodies, our ears process sound, and loud sounds will draw our attention and quiet sounds will make us listen more closely. Every colour has a different wavelength, a shape of wavelength. Red has the longest wavelength, and it's the one that sounds like a beating drum. So it's the one that draws our attention. So as the wavelengths get shorter, you've got red is the longest, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. And the big, long wavelength uh, colours are the ones that really sock us between the eyes. They advance it's, towards us yeah, the quickest. They advance yeah. towards us. It's because we are actually physically processing. So we're physically processing through our eyes, our retinas. We're physically processing the wavelength of colour. So it has a physical effect on us. And we have a physical and emotional response And so to it. why is that useful for human beings? <gasps> My goodness. Well, look at you. You see, you're, I'm sorry. But you see... You're, you're just by wearing red, you are wearing a long wavelength colour. So you are wearing a noisy colour. So a big beating drum because you are in charge, you're confident, you need to give a certain sort of, you know, you probably use that tonight to, to, to help you feel confident. It's powerful. We keep your, you're drawing our attention. Um, and so it's a, it's a signal to all of us as who's in charge. Um, and it's hugely important. So it's hugely important just from a personal point of view. But also red could be a bit of a warning as well. So we'd use red as a, as a warning sign. I mean, it could be blood. It could be, uh, you know, hot date. Uh, you know, all of these things. So, but it's the most powerful color. Uh, so we know if, if, we know, if it's a long length color, we will use it as a powerful communicator. Brilliant. I'm right <laughs> or wrong. So what actually happens in our brains then when we see color? What actually goes on in there? It's, we, it's because it's like, it's because it's almost like a, we physically respond to it because it's like a sound. So we, 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 this, an advancing color, red is an advancing color. It looks actually closer to us. If I gave you some chroma depth glasses, you would see this red actually leaping closer to you. So actually, it's, 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 effect, it's affecting us in space in our visual, you know, in the visual depth, depth of field. So if something's coming towards you, you aren't going to take more notice of it as it's, as it's further away, and you're going to respond to it in a different way. Yeah. So when, before, um, there were, what do you call them, radars, you know, for cars, um, red cars got booked the, the most because they were seen to be going faster because the red wavelength oh, was amazing. coming towards the, the policeman quicker. So that's why, I mean, I used to own a red car and I got stopped 
all the time because they would always think I was a girl racer. And in the same, in the same <gasps> sense, green cars were always uh, viewed as unlucky because they were the ones that were in, in crashes most. So it could, because people couldn't see couldn't them. See it blended into the background. The wavelength is right in the middle. And so visually, red... And it's restful. Yeah. yeah. Green's restful, yeah. And how does that lead to an emotional response, though? If you're looking at a long wavelength colour, it demands your attention. And everybody here probably is in design knows how red... You put red into a space and it, it draws your attention. But people can get quite tired of it quite quickly uh, but it's, it draws your attention so as the wavelengths get shorter so right in the middle of the visual wavelength Cara and I are wearing green and green is a colour that is, 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 is almost like if it was a sound it would like, be like uh, waves lapping on a shore it's a beautiful visual noise because it takes nothing to process it it visually connects us with the outside, so it reminds us of pastures, or green fields, of being outside. And blue is the same, short wavelength colours. So we have this emotional response. It immediately sort of lowers your blood pressure. So it makes you feel say, calm. As, as, so as, as I understand it, the humans experience, they experience colour on kind of three levels. There's mm -hmm. the kind of that really innate, almost primitive response that you're describing. Yep. And then there is the um, sort of, cultural associations yeah. that we have got, and then there's a personal level. So yeah. just talk us through examples, for example, of you've just described a psychological colour response, but what about the kind of, can you talk us through some examples of maybe cultural? Yeah, I was just going to go back a step, if I may, sure. just also with the um, emotional side. Once, So when we see colour, it's a physical thing, but when we take it in then through our brain, the reason why it then it becomes emotional is because it goes to the part of our brain that's called the hypothalamus, and that's governed our appetite, our sleeping, our nervous system, our emotions, our sexual drive, uh, everything. So this is why we have different emotional responses to different wavelengths. So that's just to tie up the end mm -hmm. of that question yeah, yeah, and yeah. to wrap up from what Marianne was saying. But um, there are three main, three main ways that we do relate to colour, and that is um, on a personal association. So everyone here maybe has been on a holiday and they've been to Santorini, you know, they've been somewhere in Italy, and they really love those ochre, ochre pinks or those, ochre, those, those reds because it reminds them of the holiday. And every time they see that colour, it, it is a, it's a feel-good association. The same thing that maybe, I mean, I absolutely hated yellow when I was doing my colour studies, and I could not work out why, and it took almost nine months for me to realise my the association that I had with yellow as a child, and quite often when we don't like a colour, we we forget the event, but we just the, the the emotion is held in the colour, but we don't remember what what happened. And so whenever we see that colour, we just have that uh, that negative emotional response. So that's personal, and that is unique to everybody because that's our own 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 memory and our own experience. Then there is cultural. So cultural is a man. That's all, a man-made thing. So it will be a tribal elder, a royalty, um, you know, an emperor. It will be some a church leader. It'll be somebody who would have decreed a colour to have a meaning. So in China, someone would have said red is the colour of good luck, good prosperity. And if you use this, possibly because they had a personal association. Don't well, don't know. It's so it's so old. It's 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 thousands of years old. Um, so we don't know how that starts. But what ends up happening, it goes into folklore that then people believe this to be true. So we so in China, uh, white is considered bad luck. Uh, so that's why white wine doesn't sell, but red wine does. In Ireland, green is good luck. So 
different colours will have different meanings in different cultures. And we have that phenomenon now. We have the pink for girl and blue for boys. That is a cultural belief, which is actually not true. So, but when we, when we see something enough and we're told enough, then we believe it to be so. And does it ever occur that you have a, a cultural meaning or a cultural response and a psychological response that clash? No, they don't. They won't clash. So, you, so for instance, you know, a lot of, lot of, there was a whole thing, my gosh, it was, I thought it was horrible, but years ago, there was a whole thing about pink stinks. And I was rung up probably every week. Well, I, make a comment in pink and, 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 and basically pink bashing. And I, ref- I said, no, but I'll tell you why I think, why, what I think is going on. And, of course, the journalist didn't want to know. But when uh, there's a backlash towards a colour, what they're just feeling is quite often is the, neg- the, the, the adverse side of that colour. So a lot of people were going, oh, I don't want um, pink for my girls because it makes them weak, it makes them needy, they, you know, they, they lose their independence, they're, you know, all these kind of things. And they're actually the adverse psychological traits of pink. And the whole meaning and the whole, uh, and they were, there was a belief that boys couldn't wear pink. And that, that is what's tying it. So these two things do end up tying in together. And how do you go about judging what influence each of those three things is bringing to bear on an individual human being? Because... That's what I do. Because <laughs> how because, do the rest of us work <laughs> out? Well, how because to... well, it's us. Well, it's actually everyone knowing that those three things exist, and it's and it's knowing what they are, and understanding the three, and and understanding what the positive and um, adverse traits of colours are psychologically, and understanding then what are colour and what is colour and culture, and all the different cultures and theirs. And then when people are actually explaining to you, oh, no, I don't want that colour for my brand because I can't stand pink, it's, ha- it's knowing how to have the conversation to understand what is going on because quite often when I am having a meeting in a boardroom and people are all sitting there, what they're basically doing is, I like that colour, I don't like that one, I like that. You cannot make a decision based on a business, on their branding or their products when everyone is firing what they like and don't like. So it's about being able to have that conversation, let everyone understand why they like and don't like it, and then being then putting that aside. And see beyond it. Yeah, because then everyone's been heard, because that's really what people want. They want to be heard and they want to understand why they're having this response. And once they do, I say, great, let's put this aside and now let's focus on the objective, which is what is the right colours for this product, for your target market, for the the brand personality, whatever it is that we're working on. Our company have been working in colour for 90 years. And we have a uh, 90 years experience of what human beings and what people have been using colours and how they've been decorating their, 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 their homes all around the world. So culture plays an enormous amount of uh, uh, in, in uh, when we're putting colours together for a different region. And um, as a global family, we look at things that are happening to human beings that drive behavior responses to certain things so how we can create spaces and homes that will they can retreat to and feel nourished and energized by so we would use color to create spaces to make people feel good in so trend forecasting do you want to know about trend yeah, forecasting okay. trend we're forecasting. on it now i've, I've steered you did you see how i steered she, you towards she's trend so forecasting because it's what i know about um so we 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 have 26 we have 80 markets in 26 countries, so we have a lot of people to, to, to please. We do a global trend forecasting um, 
uh, every year. Each one of those countries nominates one person, uh, one expert, could be an architect, could be a designer, could be somebody working in tech, that is really working in something quite fundamental, quite incredible. And it could be an ecologist, it could be somebody who's um, a social economist, um, it could be even a religious leader. And we send them all, we ask them, invite, invite them all to our um, aesthetic centre in Amsterdam. Um, and we lock them away in a room for three days and we ask them about what's happening in the world, in their world, um, and their world and how they see the future, uh, how, how, how the future of humanity really is mapping out. I know this is ridiculous and we are a big paint co co company, but colour is so fundamental to, to how human beings live and respond to the world. So we have a three-day seminar, and basically we get a snapshot of what is really big, what's the big narrative that, that, that connects us as humankind. So what's happening in China, and is it happening in the, in the Nordics? You know, and the, we're looking for stories of humanity, humans getting to grips with what it is to be living in a digital age from all over the world. And we distill these down into trends. That's how we trend forecast. So... It, this has been happening for the last five years. It's been very much focused on the human condition and what's been happening to us as human beings, global warming, politics, things falling, going to hell in a handcart. You know, how do we as human beings create spaces in which we live, feel nurtured, feel good, you know, and using my product, which is color. So a furniture manufacturer might do the same kind of thing. A lighting manufacturer might do the same thing. But we are very focused on getting the best outcome of spaces for people. And so we distill these stories into trends, and each of those trends, so this year, it's all about being human. What is it to be human in a digital age? Um, and each of these trends are about different elements and aspects of being human. Humans want to care, humans want to play, humans want to be creative, and humans want to seek meaning. So in a nutshell, that's our trend forecasting process. Um, it's extraordinary. And it's not about colour until everybody's gone home, and then we translate. Mm. And is that how we end up, for example, with millennial pink? Um, not in my, well, we didn't do millennial pink. Um, we do lots of pinks and we recognize millennial pink and it's an amazing pink. You know, we have thousands of pinks. Um, we would be distilling down into a kind of the pink story is, is, is brilliant, but pink is a great story and pink is huge. And I think it's a confidence thing, isn't it? It's a something beautiful about the many shades of pink. Um, uh, and, and also that, that uh, it's become more of a masculine color as well. And I think it's a, an, it's an amazing story of color, but, that's not our millennial pink isn't our colour, but we know it's there. Mm -hmm. We might be distilling something about pink into one of our trend stories rather than just that one. So <laughs> red is physically stimulating, and we're talking about how the wavelengths advance towards us the quickest, and this is what gives us the most energy. So when we're thinking about red, it's very, very stimulating. Light red is pink, so the soft pinks are physically soothing. Right, so, so it you, does the opposite. It does the opposite, yeah, because it's 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 the the soothing end, right? But not like a magenta or one of those kind of really cold blue pinks. They're stimulating as well, but it's the the soft the soft pinks. So um, I'm just going to say this in a, in a in a roundabout way, but um, one of the things they wanted to do in the U.S. prisons is they wanted to try when the prisoners first came in and they were in the holding cell, they were very, very agitated, and they were trying to work out a way of how they could calm them down and get them to not be so anxious and not, and, and, and not be so violent when they first came in. And the experiment, in a nutshell, the experiment was is that they used pink to put them in a cell for a short amount of time to... And I don't think they really knew that this is what was what, what was happening. They just got the result and decided to carry on with this. But really, what what 
what pink does when you're in a cell and you're very ag agitated is that it physically soothes you. And there have been studies where testosterone levels actually lower being in pink. So this is the Baker Miller pink because it was named after two, I think it was the two Air Force um, guys that um, were willing to do the experiment and so their name was given to this pink. And so now it's used in a, in a number of countries. They have these holding cells um, for, the, for this very reason. And does the effect last? For n not a long time, because you, you, and you don't need it for a long time. You only really need them to be soothed, physically soothed, in about the first 10 or 15 minutes. Because if you keep somebody in, in a colour for too long, the adverse can happen and they can actually then start getting more agitated and when they were holding them in these cells for way too long and using the wrong kind of pink, when they're using a very cold pink, they were noticing they were getting an adverse reaction. So it's not just using any pink or any colour. This is really important. It's, it's getting the tone right, the proportion of the colour right, and holding them in the place at the right amount of time to get the optimum results. Are there any other examples of really specific colours like Baker Miller pink that have been proven to have a, a, you know, a specific impact on human well, behaviour? All colours do. So even with boxing, when they have a boxer wearing red and a boxer wearing blue, the judge will actually think, it's proven that the judge thinks that the boxer that's wearing red is faster because of the wavelengths are coming towards us the quickest. Mm -hmm. And in fact, just on the pink story, there's a... Uh, U.S. Um, colleges, when they play gridiron, there was a st there was a, a, a stage where the locker, the opposition locker rooms were being painted pink to try and to emasculate the to teams. yeah to try and physically soothe them so that when they got out on the on the pitch they had kind of lost their testosterone and they'd lost their strength and it had to it went to court and the judge said you can paint the opposition locker room any color you want it's just that your your locker room has to be painted the same color so um these things are happening all of the time yeah this there's there's a lovely thing that we've um uh, we do that did this thing called uh, an initiative called smarter spaces and we were trying to prove and add and uh, uh do some studies with schools into which colors will help unlock the potential of learning in spaces. And, and we, we thought, oh, what a wonderful thing. We're going to put some big, bold colours at the top of the classroom so the teacher will be, you know, you can, kids can pay attention to the teacher. And we found that red, although it drew kids' attention, after a wee while, it drove them up the wall. Mm -hmm. So they were really locked in for, you know, um, signing in in the morning. And then, you know, after about half an hour, they just went crazy. <laughs> and so the cut colours, greens and blues, were really fantastic for unlocking that sort of attention, clarity of thought, you know, really nice, strong colours. But, but, however, we found that if you put a child in an exam situation in a red box, they'll, the short, sharp attention really helps. Yeah, but not for a long exam. time. Not no. for a long time, yeah, but short. just short, so, so, sharp. Because we got distracted again. So go back to tell me about the other colours. So... Blue is the psychological primary of the mind, so the darker blues are focused concentration, which was something that Marianne was just saying, and we all know about blue sky thinking and dreaming, and so this, the lighter blues are more mentally soothing. Um, yellow is the colour, is another psychological primary, and that's the colour with the nervous system, 
which is why you will not see yellow in a bedroom in a hotel because they do not want their guests waking up irritated. Um, a lot of people really don't like the color yellow, and it's because it's a nervous because it's 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 irritating their nervous system, and this is what people don't don't like. So that's that's yellow, and then the fourth one is green. So green is like the holistic hole. This is the one that is because it, the wavelength is in the center. It is the one that our eyes need the least adjustment. So this I is why we find this described as the color of balance. Is that it why? It is. It is. But what you don't want is a lime green because a lime green has too much yellow. So it's not all. It's not every green. You know, everyone says so. You know, really, really lime green. Everyone said this is relaxing. Well, you know. It takes you nothing nothing to realise actually it's not. It's actually a very stimulating colour because of the amount of yellow in it. So when people think green is restful, it's more the mid-greens to the darker greens and these very soft ones, but it is not greens with a really high amount of yellow in it. That is, that's highly stimulating. Can I yeah. ask about black and white? You can ask what you want. What do you want to know? Well, black and what white. about black and white? <laughs> what about them? What about them? They're what colours. About them? Come on. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a massive argument you could have about whether they're colours or not. But, but I mean, white is a, if, if we had a big colour wheel here, and in fact, we all stood, to, if we spun Susie around very fast, she would just be white because white is simply the combination of it's, 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 it's all of the colours together. Uh, and black is the complete opposite. It absorbs all colours, so it's kind of nothing. So it's almost like no colour at all. So white is every colour, black is no colour. And, and they, they, do, they, they, do they influence behaviour? They're hugely they're powerful. Every um, colour does. Yeah. Every, if you can see it, it's a colour and it will influence us. There's nothing that we don't see that won't influence us. And so do they have specific a specific kind of area of human activity in the same way that blue and green and... Yellow well, and red I, I mean, we're looking around here. I mean, black, black and white. We're sitting on white chairs. But most people have got black legs, um, <laughs> you know. And black is a, a fa fabulous color for. Uh, it stands out like a little bit like red because it absorbs light and it just leaps out at you. And in terms of, you know, it gives you, it, 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 it frames everything. So it's powerful and mysterious. Um, and when you're using it in design, it just makes everything leap out it just it's the ultimate neutral color and makes everything leap out and it's and it's I, I i mean psychologically i mean whenever we use whenever i see anybody in black i think they're in control they're probably a priest or something or hiding <laughs> you know underneath their maybe it's my background but there is something very powerful and mysterious about yeah. black and it's a hiding of your i mean you're wearing pink there but you're wearing black clothes and if you took the pink thing off you would be hiding. I wouldn't know who you were, but you seem quite fun with the pink. So yeah. you're in control, but you're a lot of fun. Yeah. So it sort of... Yeah. See, and black is a yeah. colour that has many sides, but black, one of the sides is that people don't want to be seen. So sometimes if they just want to stay in the background, that in grey is the same. It's like the, the colour that recedes. But also it, it depends... Is it all, all depends also on the context and your, your behaviour... Because if you're like a bouncer wants to come across as a big, strong, you know, solid, because it's because what it does, it creates a solid mass, doesn't it? it? And it creates this power and this bulk, and it creates a gravitas to it. So they want to have this. But if you're in a choir, so I was just at a Christmas market the other day on the weekend, and the choir was all in black because the whole idea is that we don't notice them; we just hear their voices. And that's because they don't want to be seen. So it really is how you, the context that you use the colour in and then the behaviour that goes around it that matches that context. And then it's the opposite true of white. 
So white is, um, when it comes to psychology, <laughs> it is, um, it's about creating a cocoon and, and just wanting to hide away because it's, it's like turning the noise down. It's like, and, and this is the word I can't remember saying to you before, there's a word I can't say and there's a, I'm just about to say it, anesthetize. So it's in like an, so it's like putting a, a plaster solution on top of your emotion and you're trying to stop, stop any, any feeling. It's why they used to put people in, white padded cells and white straight jackets is because to switch the mind off. So people that quite often when people just want to wear white or come home to virtual white houses, because there is so much noise going on out there, there is so much chaos in our lives, quite often the one way that they can do that is to actually then switch off their emotions and that's the colour noise. And so white is a colour that does that. And then I suppose if you then take white and mix that back into your primary, so you take red and mix it with white and you end up back to pink again what you're doing is you're taking you're you're, you're damping down you're, you're just turning the, the dial down turning, turning yeah, the dial you're, down. you're turning the dial down um, I, I was just going to say we, we we have oh my goodness how many whites we must have about hundreds 1500 whites yes just introduced another 150 can you believe it and whites is, is one of those colors that it, it gives us a blank canvas for everything um, but we still want a bit of colour with it, something about that kind of, you know, the elusive white that everybody wants. It's the colour that we sell most testers of ever because people, they, they, they want white, but they want something in it and they can't quite, they're not quite sure. Mm. And yet when the lights are like this, it could be anything, couldn't it, really? I mean, you could have 150 whites here and you wouldn't know what they are, but it's the colour that people sweat about more than anything else. Amazing. Mm. So what about colour for interiors then? We've got a room full of interior designers. Yep. How should you approach, for example, a retail interior? Um, well, it depends what the retailer just said. Karen said, you know, it's, it's what, what, when, when we're designing with colour, we have to think about the outcome. What do you want? What do you want to happen? It's not just about how beautiful it looks. You can make anything look beautiful. Your interior design is your creative bunch. You should be able to make anything look beautiful. Mm. But your primary concern or your primary objective is who are these people? What do they need? What do they need from this space? And how am I going to use colour to be able to create a feeling? So at the moment, the big thing in interiors is uh, nature-inspired colours, colours that reconnect us with nature, colours that we're familiar with because we're living in uncertain times and we return to the familiar in uncertain times. And so, you know, colour and well-being and using colour to create spaces of well-being is hugely important uh, at, at the moment. Um, and so if you're wanting to create a space where people feel comfortable, they stay longer, you need to start blurring the walls between the inside and out. You need to start thinking about biophilic elements and reconnecting us with nature in fundamental things like colour on the walls. Mm. So, but then if you wanted to have people coming in, eating up and running off, you would use something much more vibrant, you know, and it might be, it might be the, the, the brighter greens if you were thinking about biophilic design. Okay. So, is it possible that colour can make us spend more? Yes. So, Actually, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if it makes you linger in a space. If you can hold people in a space while they're browsing, they're going to spend more. Or in a they're, restaurant. Yeah. You get them staying longer because of the ambience, because of the atmosphere and the environment the, or the, the um, experience that you've created. They're going to stay and have that dessert. They're going to have that extra bottle of wine. But, Actually, I was, when I was doing my, doing my research for this, I came across the case of Charles Spence and his oh, yeah. colour lab back in 2014 at the Spanish thing down on the South Bank. And um, he got people, they gave them, everyone that went into the space was given a black cup 
with some wine in it and they drank their wine under red light and then they drank their wine under green light and when they drank it under red light, it tasted sweeter. Sweeter, yeah, because we And think... people were prepared to pay more mm. for that wine because they tasted it under red light. Yeah. So you have to kind of wonder whether retailers are being a bit cynical. Ultimately... Yes, we want it to look beautiful, but it's not it's 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 not going to do anything if it's beautiful and no one comes in and buys because it's because they haven't hit the target market. So for instance, um in a nightclub or in a bar, they put they use blue lighting to keep you awake so you stay longer to drink. Now they understand because of blue lighting and blue, you're not likely to eat, so they they they're not counting on the food market but they want people to stay and drink because it's waking the mind up. So colour is used, and, and colour can be used for good, and I always say colour can be used for, for evil. evil. <laughs> you know, then we can use it both, it can be used both ways, but if we understand what the purpose is and why we're doing it and we're using the right colours to give that message and to create that, that right behavioural response, then it can only help serve the, the, the company, you know, the... Uh, you want people to come in, you want them to, what is it that you want them to do? You can create the whole interior, but not just the colours, the textures, the finishes, the surface, the materials, the patterns, everything. There is a psychology for the whole thing. Nail that and you're talking, you're talking the language to the right customer so they know that you're talking to them. You've nailed it. It seems so complex. I mean, if you're, if you're an interior designer talking to a client, Surely you've got to understand where they're coming from because they might have a, I don't know, a predetermined hatred of yellow like you did. So you can't use yellow even if you think that might make them feel better in their home. So, so if someone came to me in the first couple of months and said to me, you need to have yellow, and because of how I felt, I would have said no way. Yes, they have to take that in consideration. <clears throat> But it's, but, it's, but it's also going into rapport with your client. I mean, that's one of the massive things, isn't it, is being able to be in rapport and having that relationship with them. And if it means at that moment not being able to put that in but you know it's the right colour for whatever reason it is other than you just wanting to put it in because that's not a reason, you know, it, you, you've, done, you've done the whole analysis. And if someone had spoken to me and said, these are the reasons why I think it's really beneficial for you to have yellow – I might say, I will, but not now because I've because I'm not ready. But knowing in time that I might be, so it's you, you're never in, in imposing a choice, and that's someone in the home. But when it comes to a brand, I think it's different because a brand has its own personality. It is its separate entity, and so everyone that's working for that company should be doing what is right for the brand. Not it's not about them. So it's this, I, I, I do handle that slightly differently. So, so moving away from commercial interiors <gasps> then and moving into the home, we were touching on this earlier, how do you go about developing colour palettes for the home, particularly in a situation where maybe you've got two people or a number of people that live in the same house that might have very different cultural and personal colour preferences? They will always have is something that they love together. That's there's no, you know, they don't sleep in separate bedrooms and there's going to be something that they love together and it's finding common ground. And the designers are good at this, you know, we're great, you know, marriage guidance and all of that kind of thing. But it's part of finding that, that common thing that was bought on a beautiful holiday or, 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 or you know, it's something beautiful and then building from the, the, you know, the common ground. I think just as a designer, you would do that. And I mean, 
the way that you would do it would be, I would imagine, would be slightly different. You're looking at, you've got the most fantastic um, little quiz in there about a couple's quiz. It's proper, proper therapy um, that <laughs> helps you put, you know, the, the needs of two people who are different in, together yes, in the same house. And there will be something to do with their personality. There will be a commonality and, um, I don't want to use the word compromise, but there is, it's, that when you understand your person, both everyone understands what their personality is and who they are, there, there is there is common ground, there is overlaps. It would be surprising um, how, how much there is. It's just understanding and recognising what that is and and uh, and being aware of that, and then that's what you build on. But I'm very much about um, building from behaviours. So how is it that you want to feel in your in the space? What what would be the hate behaviours be? How would you react? How would you respond? What what's the experience that you want to have? And so again, it's like starting from that endpoint. And then working forward, because I never have a colour conversation when I'm talking about colour. Because as soon as you start talking about colour, you've lost them in this emotional memory. You can never get them out of it. And you're, you're just, you're just stuck right there at the beginning. Cause then they're, oh, I like this one. I don't like this one. Oh, I, you know, you never get out of it. So I always start at the end and I work, and I work, um, Forwards, is that the right word? Yeah. I think this I think is the difference. Backwards. Backwards? Backwards? I always get that mixed up. But anyhow, I work, I work from that point to the beginning. I think it's a big difference in, in, in this approach where you're putting the, the, the customer. We all put the customer at the center of our working practice. The customer is the person you need to please and they're paying the bill. So there, it's very important. But, you know, what we do as designers is we generally put the sofa that the customer has bought at the center of the design process. We work the colors and the textures around the sofa, the most expensive sideboard, rather than the person sitting on the sofa. And this approach, using color and well-being, is, is, is about the person, is about mm. the people, about their needs needs, not about the sofa. The sofa is an aesthetic and it's about people's needs. So it's kind of like it's looking at things in a slightly different way. And the outcome has to be what you're working towards. You don't build from the sofa out, you build towards the outcome or both the outcome back. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I just think too, in a home, you have some areas of the home that perhaps are more public and some are more private. Should you be taking a different approach to the public areas within a home as opposed to perhaps those I think it's easier in my spaces. world. It's easier to think about. We, 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 I will be designing colour palettes to suit the many. Um, Karen's approach is about an individual tailored approach to um, creating environments for individuals because it's an individual. It's not a catch-all thing. I mean, mine is very much more about I'm, I'm wanting to create a spaces of well-being and, and using colour for good um, is, is absolutely what I'm all about. Uh, but, it's, and the, but the aesthetic is hugely important to me and I have to have a story that will appeal to the many. To the many. And Karen's approach is much more personal. Um, well, and hopefully, somewhere, we overlap. We do. We do. What about colour combinations? We've talked a lot about single colours. Are there any colour combinations that designers should avoid, well, for example? I, I mean, I am the mother of colour, and, and all mothers love the, all their babies, whether other people think they're ugly or not. I love them all. Um, and it's all about proportion. Uh, and one of the, the loveliest parts of my job is putting together palettes that tell stories, you know, palettes that you can put in any combination, and you, then you give them to a designer as inspiration, and that designer might use them in fabrics, and they might use them in different elements, and, and, but the, and they'll... they'll but I need to put a palette together that tells a good story that can be used like a toolbox. Um, so there are no colours that don't work with each other. There are no colours. There is that li li little thing that's really interesting that Karen pointed out. In that 
uh, you talk about seasons and colors, and it's very difficult to put highly saturated colors in with kind of grade off colors unless you're really clever about it. And there are some different approaches to color in your book that mm-hmm. I've found really interesting in my, in my world. Um, whereas, you know, you know, when you see two colors together and they're just not working, you can't work out why, and you can play with the proportions and you can make them pop, but there's something beautiful about the way that you've positioned color. Yeah. So, um, I talk about, and I, I, when I talk about seasons, I use it as a shorthand and it's not, it's, it's, it's the seasons as mother nature intended, not as we live it now, because we can get any plant in any time of the year, but it's actually the true, true season. So what um, Marianne was saying, so if you think of a winter, sorry, like an autumn tree and you've got the beautiful rust reds and the, and the um, golden yellows and, and olive greens and the, these beautiful colours that all work in harmony together, if you then just go and stick a magenta, a cold, because they're all warm yellow based, and if you go and stick a cold blue magenta in, in there, it will fill off. It will fill off because there is actually a mathematical correlation that doesn't work with these colours. There is a there is a jarring. And quite often when we're putting colour schemes together and we go, there's something that's not working here. They jar against each other, there's a clash, there's a there's an uncomfortableness, there's a, a an unease. It's because of the way that these it's it's the the makeup, the recipe of the colour. They don't work together. So this is what I explained in the book about by putting the colours together that harmonise, not the colour wheel, but but this mathematical correlation harmonising, that that is where there is this beautiful sense of, of a beautiful sense of harmony. And I always use the example of like um, of, of musicians. So when when someone is playing a musical instrument and there is an off note and it jars with us, it hurts. That's exactly what happens when we have colours that don't work together. So this is just a really simple system of how to how to create that. And it's back to nature. It's, it's, you yeah, know, it's nature always, te- nature it's teaches us. I'm an old hippie and nature teaches us everything. Yeah. You know, as designers, we do it instinctively. And actually, if you, you sort of start to dismantle what you're doing, you actually look outside and you go, oh, God, of course, that's working because that's working out there. Um, and, you know, natural materials and the way we put them together, we just curate them. As designers, you're curating all the time. Um, and you're using your creativity to curate. But if you look back outside at Mother Nature, mm. she's done it already. <laughs> yeah, 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 wasting your time. <laughs> done it for you. So we've got a room full of designers here. What's the best practical advice you could offer, Marianne? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I would just come back to this, look outside, go back to nature. Think about the familiar. Think about what makes people happy. You know, in times of stress and in times of trouble, we return to the familiar, familiar materials, familiar colors. We blur the spaces between the indoors and outdoors because we are indoor dwellers. We're living in a digital age. We need to reconnect with what it is to be human. And being human is what we all need to be on steroids in the next decade ahead. So, yeah, return to nature. Your turn. Um, Yeah, so I completely agree about, I mean, Mother Nature is my biggest inspiration, that's for sure. But I would just say if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. So when you're putting something together and you've just got this gut feeling, tr- absolutely trust that because of all the interior designers that, that I teach when I do my colour courses, I always, you know, they, they know something's not right. They don't always, might not know which colour it is, but they instinctively feel this. And so the more that we can hone and tune this in, and start to trust more of our, our, our own instincts and then understanding the logic and the rationale behind what we're doing, 
then I think we're elevating colour to a higher level than just um, looking to see what everyone else has done because we have to get past that. We have to really make colour more more of this human experience, more beyond just what is the populace, isn't mm -hmm. it? We were talking, you know, we always talk about colour and well-being and really using colour for good and using colour in a purposeful way, colour for purpose. It's it's so important. It's it, we're 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 done with colour decoration and pretty and colour's not pretty. It's not something that's just for aesthetics. It's not just something pleasing. It absolutely it's, has a purpose, and we really do need to use this as we need to wake up to it and use it more of a sense, like we use light. But you can totally see why people <laughs> retreat into grey and white, can't you? Because it's it's so complicated. Oh, I can, I can absolutely. Because what really has to happen is coloured coloured education in colleges at universities in it, it we, we need to elevate it can't it can't be a half a day anymore you know this is what it is it's half a day it's a color wheel that's just we're way beyond that if we really do want to have this big paradigm shift and make this big move towards well-being and we're, everyone's talking about well-being and it's not just a catch-all phrase it's not just let's just join the well-being bandwagon then, then colour has to have a bigger place in, in, in colleges and in study. It just, it just needs to. Well said. Let's give it up for colour. <laughs> We're now going to open up the conversation to the floor. So who has a question for our colour experts? I'm Dean Keyworth, the interior designer. Um, my question was, um, going back to your point about lighting and what off-whites, Say if you're doing a restaurant and you need it to look one way at the lunch service and a different way in the evening, are there certain colours that are more adaptable to a whole range of lighting? There are well, very interesting. Our uh, the big colours that we're talking about these nature's return to nature's like blues and greens and anything the sort of softer grade off colours. They're almost organic. The blues and greens at the moment will change fundamentally. In the morning they can look bright, fresh, clean, and in the evening they can look really sultry, quite, and they'll keep you in a space for longer. So any of the blues and greens, aquas, those colours work much better. They change with natural light, but they'll also change with synthetic light, so you can warm them up as well later on. So I would steer clear of anything warm in those environments. Just use warm woods, use the warmth in a natural setting, you know, nat natural materials, but blues and greens work really well. Just they change and they change fundamentally in natural light, amazingly in synthetic light. Thank you very much. Hello, um, I'm Karen, not Karen. <laughs> um, and I am a specialist decorator, so I work with lots of interior designers. Um, and just picking up on the, um, the kind of interaction of colour and light, what I found a lot is colour can be really influenced by the direction of the room, whether it's north-facing, south-facing, west or east. So the, mm -hmm. the direction of the light can be warm or cold or... Um, so that has a big influence as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, north-facing light, cool, watery, really hard to use cool colours in there unless you've got really good artificial lighting. And then south-facing rooms can look horrific if you put oranges and yellows in them and they break. It can be horrible in the sunshine. So you just have to be, yeah, understand where the light source is coming from makes a huge difference to the colours you choose and the success of those colours. Yeah, and also, I mean, when you take a colour and you, you've got it in the paint store and you think this is beautiful. I mean, I remember once I had this sort of creamy colour and I thought, oh, I, I, you know, 
did a big sample of it in my house and I thought, oh yeah, this is the perfect color. And I took it to the client and it went pink. So you really do have to test the color in the place that you're going to put it, not just go, oh, well, it works here. And then you put it on the wall. It's like, whoa, what's just happened? So yeah, I mean, color is light, isn't it? Yeah. We've had instances where we've actually had to paint one end of a room with a wash of uh, a transparent color to make it look like the other end of the room because of the direction of light. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's the that's the joy of color. It's <laughs> never consistent. The challenge of so, color. Oh it's my light. Gosh. Color is consistent. Light is not. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was a question over here. Hi. Um, I'm Audrey Whelan, an interior designer, and I wanted to ask you, uh, Karen, um, about uh, you know all, all a lot of um, what you speak about to do with the psychology uh, behind interior design. It's always been something that I've been really fascinated with in my work. So not just like the aesthetics uh, that we're trying to create, but that relationship with the client and how to maybe sort of encourage them to whether it's be a bit brave or sort of go through their fears that they may have with certain ideas and colours. And so I've always wondered kind of, you know, why there isn't more of an overlap with psychology and design, interior design in particular in this case. Um, and so that's why it's been great to discover you, your book and so on. But I wondered what you see, you know, in the future. It, will there be more of an overlap, do you think? Um, you were talking about in terms of studying and bringing more colour study into interior design. So I'd be so curious to see, you know, whether those two fields would sort of have a, a, a way to merge. Obviously, there'd still be people maybe who sit on both sides of the fields, but people who would be able to combine the two to bring that greater impact. I mean, I hope so. Um, I think teachers need to be given more time. For me, design has been so focused on function and form, and which what I call the masculine side of design. Um, and I would say that's probably 90% of a course. And the sensory side, so the lighting, um, how we, how we, how we, how we feel. We've got, we've, we're, we're feeling emotional human beings and that yet that seems to be left out of the design phase. So, um, I'm hoping that that does get readdressed and that the teachers actually are given the time to be able to do this because if they're only given half an hour, half a day, they're going to try and find something that they can actually do in that time. And, and, and that's why it's typically just the color wheel which is really a wheel, color wheel for artists. It's not, I don't think it's fit for purpose for interiors because complementary, we seem to think it means that these two colors go nicely together where really it was for, for, for artists. So we do need to take this further. And I just hope, I mean, this is something that Marianne and I, we're just out talking to and to whoever will listen to see, you know, to, to, to get the conversation going. Ten years ago, I mean, when I first started talking about colour psychology, the common answer was, what the F is that? I mean, that's what it started with, right? I'm not joking. And I thought, my God, I've actually got to spend years now educating. So I spent years educating and just talking and talking about it and just talking into the wind. It would just come back at me and no one was interested except journalists because they always love a new story. So that was, you know, the only reason why. But it's taken years, but... You know, like anything, if you just keep at it and you keep at it and it becomes more conscious and more people are interested and they think, ah, oh, there's something in this. So it will just take time. I'm not going anywhere. It'll take time. <laughs> we, as a company, we sort of, we're a bit scared of, you know, colour, 
the, the, the term color psychology, but with 90 years of experience of how human beings respond to color, and you know, our whole, our whole kind of, you know, we, we create beautiful living spaces that make people feel good, and we have a hashtag feel good color. We know color changes everything. It changes the fortunes of everything. We know how powerful it is. And so whether we put a label on it, whether it's mm. color psychology or not, but or we well-being. know, yeah, or well-being, so be it. But, mm. you know, I know from my experience, you know from your experience, that you can make spaces that make people feel great. And as designers, we should be doing more and more of that in the future. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you to Karen and Marianne for sharing your expert knowledge with us. And thank you also to Roka for hosting us today and to our partners, Trade at Houseology. And to you, our audience, for being part of our birthday episode. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on-demand services everywhere. We're on Twitter at IntDesignPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the interior design business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. (laughs) 